0: Welcome to EMSCast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Will Berry, and I'm once again joined by Ross Orpit. Hey, Ross. Hey, Will. How's it going? Good. How are you? Great. Today, we're going to be talking about a study that we first heard about through Dr. Eric Campion, who's a trauma surgeon at Denver Health, and we interviewed at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference in Breckenridge, Colorado. The gist of this new study is using entitled CO2 as a predictor of trauma morbidity and mortality. To help us dig further, we have one of the principal authors of the study, Courtney Coco Wham. For those of you that do not know Coco, she's awesome. She is a paramedic at the Denver Health Paramedic Division. She is a field trainer. Kudos, by the way, you just got nominated and won Employee of the Year for 2023. She has a Master's in Integrated Sciences, and she's a fourth-year medical student at the Anschutz Campus in Colorado, and we're super happy to have her on to tell us more about this study. Hey, Coco.
1: Hey, Will.
2: And she's decided to go into emergency medicine. Congratulations for joining
1: a great specialty. I'm really shocked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to back up a little bit and give our listeners a little bit of background. In the past, how has the severity of a trauma patient been measured objectively?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think as pre-hospital providers, we are often tasked with determining the severity of our trauma patients or a patient with a traumatic mechanism through very limited resources. So in the pre-hospital setting, I think it's fair to say that pre-hospital trauma triage has long been limited to basic vital signs and a good physical exam. Beyond that, there's been some talk about shock index, which we will get into a little bit later and how that is utilized in some, but not all EMS and pre-hospital systems. Um, And then in the hospital, Dr. Orpit will talk a little bit more about what happens in the emergency department with measuring trauma severity objectively.
0: So, you know, I'm a paramedic. I arrive on scene of a severely injured patient and really I'm just able to gauge how sick they are from what I can assess with my physical exam and my history, which we've talked to Dave Edwards about, and the vital signs that I gather. Ross, tell us a little bit about this idea of shock index.
2: Yeah, so the idea of the shock index is just another piece of the puzzle that's been studied. You know, can we use some number, right? We like numbers in the emergency setting. Can we use a number to predict if somebody is going to do poorly or or do well? And so they've studied this in the literature before. They found that a shock index uh, greater than 0.9 significantly increases your morbidity and mortality in the setting of trauma and other critical illnesses too, to be honest. Now, a number of 0.9, I always find like, really, you know, we, we harp on this, you're going to ask me to do math in the middle of a critical setting. So there's actually, for, in my mind, a much better way to think about this. And so it's the shock index is your heart rate divided by your systolic blood pressure. And essentially to get a number of 0.9 or higher, what you need is a heart rate that is greater than your systolic blood pressure. And so that's what I like to think about it in these critical settings. Is this patient's heart rate more than their systolic blood pressure is right now? And if it is, that's a bad sign.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. I think it's something that we've maybe experienced with our patients in the field and maybe know instinctively, but that's interesting that that specific metric has been studied. Is that something that can guide care in the emergency department? I mean, I think, again,
2: it just increases your worry for that patient. We're constantly trying to predict who's going to do poorly, who's going to do well, who needs blood, who maybe is at risk for going to operating room sooner rather than later. And so it's another measurement that fits into this complex puzzle of deciding how sick a patient is and what the
0: next treatment step is. So getting more um, towards the study, Coco, what's the hypothesis of this new study?
1: So the hypothesis for this study was that pre-hospital and tidal CO2 values would be predictive of mortality in both intubated and non-intubated patients. And we also hypothesized that they would outperform systolic blood pressure and shock index in the pre-hospital setting.
0: So basically, I arrive on a critically injured trauma patient. As I'm packaging them and getting them loaded for transport, this Pretty easy to obtain value could be a really significant marker engaging how severe they are. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, that was, that was definitely the hypothesis and the grounds off of which this study was built.
0: How was the study performed?
1: So this was a prospective observational study conducted with the Denver Health Paramedic Division and two Level 1 trauma centers, the Ernest E. Shock Trauma Center at Denver Health and the University of Colorado. And paramedics were asked to place patients that they deemed to be at significant risk of injury from a primary traumatic mechanism on the appropriate end tidal capnography monitoring device. So that included both what we refer to as an ILVC or an inline ventilator circuit monitoring device. That's the piece that goes between an ET tube and a BBM, for example or through a specialized nasal capnography cannula to obtain those ETCO2 values in the field.
0: Nice, so basically equipment that are readily available on ambulances all across the country and people are using them all the time anyway.
1: Absolutely, and that was one of the great parts about this study is the ability to repurpose a tool that one, paramedics and EMTs are already trained on using, and two, is already basically universally found in pre-hospital agencies across the nation.
0: So it's back to the methods. So who got put on entitled CO2 and who didn't?
1: Yes. Yeah, essentially we asked our paramedics to place three types of patients on entitled capnography monitoring devices with a primary traumatic mechanism. The first was any emergent return to Denver Health. The second was any emergent return to the University of Colorado. And the third is a Denver Health Paramedic Division system-specific setup, but we have essentially a cross between an emergent and a non-emergent return called a Code 9 setup where paramedics call Denver Health and pre-alert them that though they are not coming back with lights and sirens, this patient is somebody that may be incredibly sick and needs to be placed in a front room. And
0: did the paramedics have to alter their practice in any way? Is this this something they're already doing?
1: So the practice of using the code 9 or the non-emergent setup and emergent returns is obviously not new. We are not asking paramedics to alter their pre-hospital trauma triage. What we were asking them to do was then take those patients and place them on an appropriate end-tidal capnography monitoring device which was not previously implemented in our pre-hospital care.
0: Gotcha. But it seems pretty simple.
1: It is pretty simple, but I will be the first to admit that remembering to place a severe trauma on entitled capnography is super hard. I remember I had just joined the study. This is before I was in medical school, and Dr. Campion had actually come and presented to the paramedic division to get us to enroll these patients. And I just cold emailed him and was like, hey, I want to be involved and we met, and then the next day I ran a shooting and brought it to Denver Health, critical patient, Dr. Campion standing at the head of the bed, and I did not put the patient on entitled capnography, and I wanted to die.
0: Yeah, I I mean, if I'm I'm not playing host for a second, I would definitely be resistant a bit, and I, I was still working at Denver Health when the study rolled out, and I knew, like, the compliance would be, you know, some people would be all about it, some people wouldn't, some people would forget, but that being said, did you guys get the right amount of patients in order to do the study?
1: We had enough patients to get statistically significant results, though we planned for about double the enrollment, and our biggest obstacle was not having paramedics place the patients on entitled capnography. It was actually that there was a supply chain issue in which we were not able to get the nasal capnocannulus for months at a time during the study.
0: Right, because this took place on the the tail end of the COVID thing.
1: That's Correct.
2: So during the study, you guys actually found that paramedics did readily place these in CO2 monitors on their trauma patients?
1: We had enough patients that our, our N was 550 patients that were included in the study. That is after exclusions of like patients in custody, pregnant patients, primary burn patients. That being said, we did not actually pull how many trauma patients would have fit into the criteria and then how many paramedics actually put those patients on end capnography. Okay.
0: So, not really sure about the compliance. Correct. So, tell us a little about the results. What did you guys find out?
1: Yeah, so we had some pretty cool results. We found that pre-hospital end-tidal CO2 was predictive of mortality in our overall cohort and outperformed systolic blood pressure and shock index to a level of statistical significance. We also we're able to then look at a outcome that was more directly related to hemorrhage. So we looked at the need for massive transfusion in our overall cohort and found again that pre-hospital end tidal CO2, specifically the minimum pre-hospital ETCO2 value obtained, was a significant predictor of the need for massive transfusion and outperformed Again, systolic blood pressure and shock index from the pre-hospital setting. We then looked at a cohort that was specifically of patients who just had nasal capnocannulas and looked at the ability for those values to predict mortality and need for massive transfusion. And what we found is that pre-hospital ETCO2 values were actually the best predictors of both mortality and massive transfusion when obtained only by nasal cannula, though it did not outperform systolic blood pressure and shock index to a level of statistical significance. And we believe this was likely due to the low number of the outcomes of interest in these subgroups.
0: Why did you guys really zero in on the nasal cannula patients?
1: As a paramedic in a system that does not have RSI, if I am innovating a trauma patient, the cat is out of the bag. I know this patient is sick. I know they need a level one trauma center. And that being said, it it doesn't necessarily add anything to my practice in an urban EMS system. This is not true for all EMS systems. However, when I think about my practice as a paramedic, there is a subgroup of patients that I sit there looking at thinking, Are you sick? I think you could be really sick, but your blood pressure is fine. And are you on a beta blocker? I, I just don't really know what's going on here. And I think that for me, that patient doesn't need to be intubated, but I am looking for more objective data. And that is where I think that entidal capnography can play a huge role in my urban EMS practice without RSI.
2: Talk to me about numbers. So what numbers of entidal would be concerning?
1: First and foremost, before I talk about numbers, this study needs to be reproduced in a multi-institutional trial to verify these numbers. So We used what is called a Uden index, which when they first asked me about it, I was not sure what language they were speaking. But what the Uden index told us was a cutoff. The cutoff that we identified in the overall cohort for mortality was 22 millimeters of mercury, um, saying that an end tidal capnography value below 22 millimeters of mercury was in the outcome of interest. For mortality or saying that patients with an end CO2 in the pre-hospital setting of 22 or less died. For massive transfusion, that number was 23 millimeters of mercury or saying that patients who had ETCO2 values at 23 or less were more likely to receive massive transfusion when brought to a hospital.
0: And that goes back to that value potentially outperforming those other indicators?
1: So we then we took that Uden index and that was where we identified the cutoffs for what we were going to consider to be in the outcome of interest or not for both mortality and massive transfusion. We then used a different statistical analysis to look at the comparison between systolic blood pressure and shock index and used a p-value of less than or equal to 0.05 to determine if there was a statistical difference.
0: You'll have to forgive me because I took stats a long time ago and didn't pay attention. But ultimately, the entitled CO2 value is potentially incredibly helpful, almost just as or maybe even more than some of these things that we're used to using. And we're talking about Predicting mortality, morbidity, and also if the patient's going to need massive transfusion. Does that sound correct?
1: Yeah, that's what we're saying here. And I think that the implications of this could be far more reaching than me as an urban EMS provider being 15 minutes max from the closest level one trauma center. But as we continue to push the envelope on pre hospital interventions with whole blood or TXA, interventions that are not without risk. This will add an objective piece of data to give pre-hospital providers better insight into the actual status of their patient on a real-time central measurement of perfusion.
0: Yeah, I love that because... How often were we, we're on a scene, we're looking at what happened, we're looking at a car, a motorcycle, a fall, a whatever, and then we're also looking at this patient, we're just like, ah, you should be hurt, but you seem fine. This is just another tool in our toolbox, which I think is super valuable for us to make the best judgment call we can in the field with not a lot at our disposal. And that's why I love the idea, too, of not introducing a new fancy piece of equipment or a lot of math. It's like this is something that we routinely look at anyway um, for other patient subsets. And we're potentially identifying more ways to interpret that data to, to help us take good care of people.
2: Coco, for a second, can we step away from the stats and the numbers and actually just talk to me about what's happening? Why is a low entitled CO2 bad? Why does that pertain to possible bad outcomes in my patient?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. And the mechanism behind why we anticipate that these ETCO2 values are low in patients who are hemorrhaging is is sort of linear. So first, you have trauma that results in bleeding. From there, you're going to have decreased cardiac output at some point. And when you have decreased cardiac output, you're going to have reduced alveolar perfusion in the lungs. And when you have reduced alveolar perfusion, you're getting reduced diffusion across the alveolar membrane. And that is the mechanism by which CO2 leaves the body. It diffuses from the blood across the alveolar membrane into the lungs, and then we exhale it. So if you go all the way back and you say, okay, we have decreased cardiac output because we're bleeding out, we will have inadequate alveolar perfusion, less diffusion of CO2 across the alveolar membrane, and then we are expiring less CO2, hence reduced levels of ETCO2. So it's a cardiac output issue.
2: Interesting. So the, the CO2 in your blood, the acidity of your blood is actually rising, but you're just not delivering that to the lungs or to the alveoli in order to exhale it. And so we're, we're picking up less entitled CO2 on our, on our device because they're not able to exhale what they need to with that buildup of acid.
1: Right. And that comes back to, I think, what Dr. Campion saw in the OR as the original justification or reason why he looked at ETCO2 is there was this ever-growing gap between the blood value levels and the ETCO2, and hence the study was born.
0: What comes next for you guys with this information?
1: So we presented the information at the Southwestern Surgical Congress in Ohio at their 74th annual scientific meeting. And we are now working towards funding. Everything comes down to funding to look at a, a large multi-institutional trial. We need to look at urban, suburban, rural transport times in a bunch of different settings and validate these findings before it becomes, quote unquote, law or, or standard practice.
0: Something that Dr. Campion touched on when we interviewed him that I really loved is it's just another piece for him when he hears an EMS report about a patient coming in that can help guide care. Is it possible that transport time or length of time in field could alter these numbers or do you guys even know?
1: The answer to that question lies in a big part of this study that has been complicated, and that is if a patient is severe enough to have low ETCO2 values and your transport times are longer, to me, that means your patient is closer to being a traumatic cardiac arrest than perhaps my patient is because I'm 10 minutes from the hospital. And once you get into the realm of cardiac arrest, now your values are being skewed by cardiopulmonary arrest and not just hemorrhage. And so this was also a subgroup analysis that we had to perform. We had about 30 patients, uh, 25 to 30 patients who had pre-hospital cardiac arrest that were majority of which arrested in front of pre-hospital providers and had immediate CPR. However, in our subgroup analysis, we found that pre-hospital ETCO2 values were still the best predictors of mortality or need for massive transfusion, though they were not, the values did not outperform systolic blood pressure and shock index to a level of statistical significance. And again, this is likely due to the low numbers of the outcomes of interest in these subgroups. That being said, it's gonna be tough in the larger multi-institutional trials to find a subset of patients who both present with etco2 values that are in that less than 22 23 range and have prolonged transport times and don't present in cardiac arrest
0: what about if it's a penetrating mechanism versus a blunt mechanism
1: That's a great question. The mechanism behind end tidal capnography and our proposed mechanism by which these ETCO2 values are dropping with that reduced cardiac output, there shouldn't be a difference between blunt trauma and penetrating trauma in the setting of both of these patients having a hemorrhagic component to their trauma. That being said, it was not something that we looked at in this study.
2: You kind of alluded to this in talking about the need for further studies, but you know, just tell us again, is this ready for prime time? Should all of our listeners go out and start using this?
1: Sadly, this is not ready for prime time. It is the nature that I have learned through research and wanting to change the world one day at a time, but it's not ready for prime time. That being said, as a pre hospital provider, obviously one that was very invested in this study. I do put those patients on end capnography or those patients that I'm thinking, are you sick? Are you not sick? What's going on with you? And when their end capnography is low, I'm more concerned. And perhaps that's a, a confirming bias on my part for being part of this study. But I do think that like with every tool we have in the pre-hospital setting, you have to take it with a grain of salt and you have to use your brain and you have to use it as a piece of a larger puzzle that you're trying to solve to take the best care of a patient that you can. And if that means that it's valuable, sure, if you call BASE and tell them the entitled capnography value on a study and Dr. Campion doesn't answer the phone, they're going to think you're not sure what you're doing. So... Um, I think that the the answer lies somewhere in between, but the official answer is it's not ready for prime time.
2: I like that. I currently work in a rural hospital system where I sometimes find myself with these gray area patients of, "Ah, I maybe had a severe mechanism or there's some sort of spidey sense that's making me worried about you. And I have to make a decision. Do I keep you here and do more studies or do I just call somebody and send you to a trauma center right away? Uh, Because you need to get somewhere quickly. And so I like the idea of using this in my rural emergency department and putting some of these gray area patients on entitled CO2. And maybe I'm not reassured by a normal number, but I'm certainly more concerned by a low entitled CO2.
1: Absolutely. I think the the other piece to this puzzle that may warrant further investigation is looking at respiratory rates, which we did not do, but looking at. Is my patient hyperventilating? Because experience would tell me that that would falsely reduce my end tidal CO2. So you have a patient in a major trauma and they're hyperventilating and their respiratory rate is 40 and their end tidal is 20. Well, maybe I'm a little less concerned um, unless, of course, they're like chain stokes breathing and there would be other signs to me that this was more severe. And so I, I think that in the further studies, we may also look at respiratory rate as a facet of end-tidal CO2 and see if that plays a factor.
2: Yeah, that's so hard to tease out because it depends on why the respiratory rate is up, right? Are they are they hyperventilating because they're anxious and they're, they're doing that? Or are they hyperventilating because their pH is low, their blood is acidic, and they're trying to blow off that CO2 but don't have the cardiac output to do it as well as they can?
0: Coco. Entitle CO2 has been a part of sepsis evaluation pre-hospitally for a while. Is that a similar mechanism? Do we know?
1: I actually don't know the answer to this. I think that the answer for me, I guess, in sepsis, I think of three things with derivation of ETCO2 from PACO2. And I think that's VQ mismatch, abnormal ventilations or respirations, and then reduction in cardiac output. So when we're talking about sepsis, If we're talking about septic shock, sure, reduction in cardiac output could reduce your ETCO2 values. However, though, if we have a pneumonia, now we are introducing another reason by which there could be a VQ mismatch for an ETCO2 value reduction. I think that we also could have changes in respiration as a facet of some sort of a pulmonary infection. And so teasing that out a little bit more may be necessary. When I think about the way by which this tool can be helpful. I think of three things. First, transport decision, which I don't think we talked about because for me as a pre-hospital provider in an urban EMS system, my transport decision is very easy. However, in rural settings where those providers are having to decide, am I driving an hour and a half to a level one trauma center or am I driving 45 minutes to my primary hospital in my area, I think that this can also be a tool that would increase an index of suspicion for a pre-hospital provider. And then the second is resource allocation. Resource allocation being, am I going to have an OR ready? Am I going to have a surgeon at the bedside? Am I going to have my level one infuser primed? Those are all things that I think can be helpful with resource allocation in an urban system. And then rural could be uh, having the, the chopper, the bird ready to go in these patients where you're kind of on the cusp of what to do. Um, And then lastly, as we previously talked about pre-hospital intervention, and as we continue to expand what can be done in the pre-hospital setting with TXA and blood products, I think we often forget the risk that can be associated with administering those products in the wrong patient population and also the benefit in a patient where you're not totally sure and have more objective information that can better inform that decision, we will have better patient outcomes.
0: So, Coco, any other key take-home points you want people to know about this discussion?
1: My pet project take-home for this is pre-hospital providers can get involved in research. I was not in medical school when I got involved in my first pre-hospital study, and I personally think that pre-hospital research is an area where we as agencies tend to be collecting a lot of information. But then publishing that data for the use of other agencies seems to be a bit behind or not to its full potential. And so I would encourage paramedics and EMTs to get involved in research. I think that evidence-based medicine is the absolute best way that we can serve our patients. And being a part of it with the experience of actually being in the pre-hospital setting, I found to be really valuable in explaining things like Code 9 setups versus Code 10 setups or the actual implementation of these devices and how it may, may best serve the process in the pre-hospital setting.
0: If I'm a hardened paramedic on the street and the, all the evidence I need is that I think it's stupid, does that count?
1: Oh man, this is a, this is a, a sore spot for me, but it doesn't count. It does not count.
0: <laughs> Amen. I agree.
2: Thanks so much for joining us, Coco. Yeah, really appreciate it coming you coming on.
1: Well, do oh, you remember ahead. my favorite trauma patient we ever ran together? You were my field trainers and I was an EMT and I took your knees out with the pram. <laughs> was it the jumper? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about that. So Coco, if you have a patient that jumped off a five-story parking structure and is folded in half, Get does Entitled CO2 tell us anything about them?
1: Yeah, you know, if you have an eager EMT, they probably already have the patient on entitled CO2 as <laughs> I would have, but... I would say you're probably going to have low ETCO2 values or none.